What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today is a very special Q&A. It's special because I get to introduce the very first Boom Boom Performance Nutrition Coach, Courtney Sturgeon. Courtney is the first coach, and I'm going to do this every time a new coach comes on board with the team because I do anticipate this to grow, but I wanted to get her on the show, and I wanted you guys to hear her voice, hear her knowledge, and just get to know her because she is a part of the Boom Boom Performance movement because it is way more than one person. It is a movement. It's all of you guys. It's all of us, and it's all of us growing together. So she came on the show. I got to introduce her. I got to talk to her and quiz her a little bit about you know, where she came from, why she's into fitness, how she got into nutrition, and why she's so passionate about coaching people on nutrition specifically. So we touched on those things, and then we got right into the questions together this time, going back and forth, breaking down a lot of good questions. Um, I touched on training a lot. I got to talk about something that I'm passionate about learning about and, and I actually find very, very intriguing, which is these natural bodybuilders slash power lifters, right? We can call them power builders, kind of like density, um, which we talk about. Um, there's a link in the, in the description. You can grab that. Um, density is my recent program I launched called Density Power Building. So it's specifically targeting people who want to not only build muscle, look great and lean and shredded and jacked, but they also want to lift heavy weights too. They don't want to be all show. They want to be able to go as well. Um, And there's these guys in the natural space. It's pretty crazy. They'll get on the platform. They lift heavy weights. They crush the competition. And then they go stand on a stage and they pose and they look shredded. So we're going to touch on how they train, um, if they're just genetic freaks or not, and how you can actually do that same thing. We touch on what would happen if you ate a full cup of Stevia or Splenda probably not a good idea and it's probably pretty fucking gross too but we talk about that we talk about intermittent fasting we talk about training in the morning we talk about age differences in training we talk about um carb timing protein timing the best protein powders besides whey if you can't tolerate it we go into depth on a lot of different topics i had a lot of fun being able to do it with courtney this time and i think you guys are going to take away a ton from this q a just like always before we get into the show i just want to give one quick reminder guys that i do have a patreon account so if you love this show if it helps you in any way, if it's delivering value to you, if you are getting better results because of this show and you want to support this show so we can grow it, we can come out with more episodes, put out more free content so you can continue to learn and educate yourself on getting a better body and getting a better life, you can donate to the cause now. You can donate to the movement and you can help us grow by visiting us at patreon.com slash performance or clicking the link in the description to donate today. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the Q&A. Let's start with um, how did you get – and this is actually going to be cool because I haven't been able to actually sit down and talk to you. I, know, like, like you don't, I don't even think you know the history and story or anything like that. So that this is going to be kind of cool. Yeah, so let's start with the story. Like why – I mean why are you so into fitness and nutrition and everything? Um, well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, um, I – when I was in college, I gained the, the typical like freshman 20 or whatever. Um always been active in high school, but then went to college and just drinking beer and hanging out and that, that weight came on. Um, and then I went to visit my dad and he, you know, him, my stepmom, my younger brothers and sisters, like when you don't see someone for a long time, everybody was like, wow, um, you've gained some weight, you put some pounds on. And, and at first, you know, I was upset and, you know, my dad kind of took me aside and he was like, Um, in a very, you know, not in a mean way, but really polite way. He was like, you know, this really isn't, this this doesn't really line up with, 
you know, our family, you know, we were active, we try to be healthy, you know, things like that. And he was like, how about a little more studying, a little less beer, um, you know, maybe start working out, you know, finding activity. And, um, you know, I went off and at first I cried. Um, but now that I think about it, like that was the best thing that he ever could have said to me or, or did to me. Cause I went, I did go back to college and I started working out and, lifting a little weights in the weight room, you know, mostly machines, because um, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but all that weight came off. And I think at that point is when I just kind of decided, like, I didn't ever want to feel that way again. Like, just, I just always want to feel healthy and everything like that. So, um, you know, my, you know, I met my husband in college. We, you know, we've always been active. We were always either like doing like co-ed softball together, um, working out in the gym together. Um, we always motivated each other to, to be healthy um, and to be active. Um, when we first got married, we actually even just had a conversation. Like we don't want to, we want to help each other. Like we don't want to ever like let each other go or whatever. Like we always want to look good for each other, um, you know, and stay healthy. So that was good. We, we kept each other motivated um, all the time. Um, then we, we found CrossFit. So we, uh, when we moved to the Pacific Northwest, um, just, you know, typical gym work, you know, working out in the gym and stuff. And then, um, a friend introduced us to CrossFit. So we started there. Um, I did CrossFit for about six years and just within doing CrossFit, just got really interested in learning about nutrition. So I just started reading every book I could. I went to library. Um, I just started checking out all the free books I could on nutrition and health and everything. And then I think it just kind of, um, uh, my friends kind of knew I was doing that and stuff like that. So then they asked me to help run a health challenge at the gym. So I was like, sure. And, you know, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like, so we created a Facebook group and just kind of went from there. We just helped each other and motivated each other. And then um, it was kind of funny because I wasn't getting a, t a ton of response from people, you know, which was okay. But then after the challenge was over, everyone was like, when's the next one? That was amazing. I learned so much information from you. And I was like, oh, like, I didn't even know you guys liked it. And they were like, yes. And I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's do another one. And so that just kind of fueled my fire to just, I just like, okay, well, I'm going to keep learning and keep studying. Um, you know, I did several health challenges and then just kind of like fast forward from then I was like, I want to learn more. So then that's when I, um, uh, researched and did the precision nutrition level one certification, um, and then after I got that, uh, that's when I started stalking you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and so what made you, because a lot of people don't realize, like you reach out to me, I didn't reach out to you. You reach out to me mm -hmm. and you just wanted to learn more. What right. made you want to do that? Because I think a lot of people think that things are just going to happen, right? And in every mentor I've ever had, every boss I've ever had, every like good situation I've ever had, I had to reach out to somebody in make that happen right it was never just like oh this just got handed to me so like what made you do that um i think just listening to your podcast and just listening to the the content and the information that you were putting out there um it just made me realize that 
if this is my passion, if this is something I really want to do and pursue, then I have to make it happen. And I have to, you know, I, um, reaching out to you was so far outside of my comfort zone. And it was the scariest when I hit send on that email, it was one of the scariest, one of the scariest things I've ever done because I just wasn't, um, that's just not my personality, you know? So, but I, but I really wanted this. And I think it was just because, I believe so much in the boom, boom performance movement and just the content that you're putting out and stuff that I, you know, I was like, I need to, I need to learn from somebody. And I was like, and if, if, if he, you know, if I can't learn from him, I was like, hopefully he'll maybe give me some names or some, you know, give me some advice, like anything would, would be helpful. And so that's just, that's just kind of what made me, made me reach out. And now you're a nutrition coach with Boom Boom Performance. <laughs> so I think it's such a good lesson, though, because everybody has that doubt and that fear and that anxiety and, and kind of that negative story or that negative voice telling them don't do it or there's no point or they're not going to respond or they don't give a shit. And so they don't click send. But then there's the people like you who still have those thoughts, but they click send anyway, and then opportunities open, right? Like, Every time I've ever questioned myself on that and I just click send anyway, it's always been a positive experience because every mentor that I've had started with sending an email like that being like, fuck, this person doesn't even know who I am. Fuck it. I'm just going to do it. And it worked out, right? So um, it's so powerful and it's such a good lesson for people to uh, to just take action, right? Yeah. I think, I know. I just, I was like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I was like, he'll say no I was like I'm not gonna die like it's not gonna kill me if he says no like you know so I just you know and I kind of think about that through a lot of things that I do and just you know as you're pursuing goals and pursuing things that you want like it's scary um but yeah just like you said like just you just gotta fight through that fear and when you do I mean it's usually always something really good comes out on the other end so I try to keep that in mind too like you know, this was scary or that was scary, but then I achieved this or that, you know? So then that just keeps me motivated to keep doing scary things. hundred percent. Have you, have you read uh, the war of art? No, <laughs> oh, you got to read that. It's literally, it's like a book that you could read a page a day. It's one of those books that every page is different. It's like a little mini story, but it's all about resistance and why that you actually need to push into resistance instead of letting it push you back such yeah. a powerful book. It's actually a guy who wrote it based on writer's block and how he pushes through writer's block. Pushes but he, <laughs> yeah, but he, he makes it applicable to like every aspect of your life. Really, really good. So definitely check yeah. that out. Well, I was going to say the, the quote that's like getting me through lately is like when people say like lean into the mountain, you know, it's like the mountain is supposed to be the thing that scares you or, you know, the thing that you know, you're fear fearful of. And so like right now, just thinking like, you know, leaning into the mountain, leaning into that fear, um, has definitely gotten me through a few, a few scary situations. <laughs> yeah, me too. And the, what you want is always on the other side of that mountain. So I a hundred percent agree. Um, well, cool. Let's, uh, let's get onto the questions. Like, obviously I wanted to just touch on who you are a little bit. I think people know by now, cause I keep talking about you, but, um, we're going to do a Q and a now. So why don't we just bust them out? I think these are all from Facebook. Um, let me, uh, let's hear the first one. Okay. And, uh, same people's names. That's gotta be, you always said that's like the hardest thing. And I'm same here. I'm just like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to mess up. I'm so happy because I don't have to do that part right now. And I don't I have, <laughs> 
I knew you would be. I knew you were going to be like, yes, I don't have to say anyone's name today. I'm messing yeah. up. So. Okay. Or read it. Just wait till there's bad grammar and then it's going to make you sound I know. Good. I've already tried to like read through a couple of these. Okay. <laughs> Jason Gardner. Gardner. I don't know. Um, do I need to count the carbs from stevia? I read different answers such as no need to count them because your body doesn't actually absorb them. I don't know if it's because – I don't know if absorbing them would be the right way to explain it, but I would say no. I think it's splitting hairs. If you are consuming a cup or more of stevia a day, then you might want to record that because that might affect – basically the reason why people don't track stevia is because it doesn't have a significant effect on raising your insulin or effect on your blood sugar like a actual gram of sugar would, right? Sugar will spike your insulin. It'll raise blood sugar. That's going to be a caloric significant thing that you're going to want to track. But with stevia, it's basically, it's a zero calorie thing for a reason. Um, it's a natural sweetener that actually doesn't spike insulin enough to really worry about it. Um, but I think anything in a high, I think even Splenda, same thing. Like if you have a ridiculous amount of Splenda, if you had a cup of Splenda, which is disgusting. You'd probably want to track it because that would probably add to some carbs. But um, I think that's a pretty basic question. I would say no, but I think at the same time, like I know competitors that will be getting ready for a stage and they will eat like two packs of gum a day. Like that's not good. So I would record any type of zero calorie thing like gum or stevia or sweeteners if you have an issue with over consuming them. So if you're somebody who does like binge chew gum <laughs> like you should probably track that because that will add up would you agree okay. yeah i agree on that um also you know like you said if you are eating a a large amount of it maybe tracking it would help you see how much you're eating of it and how much you're actually getting in of it like if you're just putting a little bit in your coffee in the morning or something like that then i agree i don't think you need to track it i don't think it's that big of a deal but. yeah um Okay, next question. Melina, Olivia, DiPaleo. Um, I'm loving this. <laughs> this, is, this is awful. No. <laughs> okay, what is the actual meaning of when people say fat burner versus carb burner? Lots of paleo people talk about retrain your body to burn fat versus consumed carbs. So... Uh, and you might know a little bit about this too, because you've been in the, I mean, well, I guess you're not really in the paleo space, but you're in the CrossFit space and paleo was a big thing in the CrossFit space. But basically that's like keto, right? Like if it, I always call it fat adapted. So basically using fat for fuel, right? We talk about turning to a, that's the whole purpose of intermittent fasting, ketone supplements, getting into ketosis, um, even just following a higher fat diet or fasted cardio or anything like that. The whole purpose of it is to create a, an environment in your body where you become like quote unquote fat adapted, where you're using fat for the fuel to perform whatever activity. So basically saying you're a carb burner versus a fat burner, I think is only an applicable term or like a real thing if you go into a ketogenic diet. If you are eating plenty of carbohydrates, like for me right now, I would be considered a carb burner because I eat more than enough carbs, so I have glycogen stored, I can use them for fuel. To become a fat burner, I would say you'd have to go low carb, you'd have to deplete your body of carbohydrates, of stored glycogen through high rep training, glycolytic training, and then you would have to start fueling your body with fats and become fat adapted. So. I think that did she just ask if there's a if it's legit or um she just asked uh 
She just wants to know the meaning between the difference when people say, like, what's the difference between fat burner and carb burner? Oh, okay. Uh, paleo so, people talk about retraining your body to burn fat versus consume carbs. Yeah, so I would say that exactly what I just said. You just become fat adapted. You have to follow a really low carb approach. And if we look at paleo, it's fairly low carb. The only carb you can really have is sweet potatoes and you can only eat so many sweet potatoes. So most paleo people are eating a lot of nuts, nut butter, oils, grass fed butter, avocado, stuff like that. And they end up being on a very high fat diet. Um, so if you want to become more fat adapted, you would have to cut out carbs, increase fats. I would personally use a lot of like MCT or coconut oil because it's a different type of fat. It's a medium chain triglyceride that just burns a little bit quicker as fuel transforms into fuel a little bit quicker. Um, but I don't think there's like any benefit to it because if calories are equated for it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And I think it's important too, for people to consider what form of activity, activity and exercise that they're doing before that, you know, before they decide to go keto or paleo or completely cut carbs out or be a fat burner or a carb burner. Um, like you really need to research that and look into, is that a, is that a good idea for the goals that you're trying to hit and for the fitness that you're doing, you know, does that, are the two going to match up and make sure that it makes sense for you and that it's right for you. Really good point. Cause I think, and that's the, the worst part about paleo being so heavy in CrossFit, to be honest with you. It's just not enough carbs. Worst ideas ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in that, in that, I mean, that goes for like the reason why I called myself a carb burner is because so I'm getting ready for a photo shoot and I'm doing like very strategic bodybuilding training. So it's very, very high volume, very, very high reps. So I'm going to be using glycogen. I'm going to be using carbs. I want to maintain my muscle, which is another point too. If you're going on a diet and you want to get super lean, but you want to maintain as much muscle as possible. I personally believe a higher carb diet is going to be much better than a lower carb because carbs coupled with protein actually spikes muscle protein synthesis better, like higher and longer. So if you're trying to maintain muscle mass during the cut to be not skinny fat by the end of it and actually be lean and muscular, I think the best way to go is to actually keep enough carbs in your diet to obviously perform well, but then to maintain as much muscle as possible. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Cool. Um, okay. Jessica Evans. She has two questions. Dr. John Russin, uh, just had a post about why certain lifting accessories, lifters, braces, belts, straps are killing your gains. Would be interested in your take. I generally train minimally, but do use straps on my deadlift and rack pulls when I'm getting to my max or just when my hands are torn to shit already. Out loud. <laughs> so, it's hard to, because Dr. John Reston's so damn smart. And like, even just like, I've had conversations with him, like on the phone and just chilling and talking to that dude. is just like, it's crazy. He's so intelligent. So I'm never going to say he's wrong, but what I will say too, because I haven't read what he posted that day, he's really good with titles. Like we'll, I'll write a blog for his website and we'll go back and forth on titles and he'll come up with some like really good titles that will get people to click on that post. Um, so I will say that like, depending on what, cause he might have said that and then you go into it and it's not exactly what you would think it is. Um, mm -hmm. But it could have been. And what I will say too is in most cases, I would do everything possible to not utilize a belt, straps, gloves, anything. But if, for example, Courtney, you tell me that you can deadlift 200 pounds, no gloves, but you can deadlift 250 with gloves. I'm going to say, well, once you get up to that 200 pounds, just add 
gloves because I, it's more important for you to get that total volume in your training, that total intensity through that deadlift than to try to build your grip strength, which is going to take much longer to build up. So what I would recommend is don't use them unless you have to. Um, I think a belt is actually very useful. I would argue against not using a belt. Um, I won't use it as a crutch for anybody, but I do believe that it teaches people how to breathe properly. And to this day, I don't have any low back issues anymore, but I still use one when I deadlift heavy or squat heavy because when you're trying to breathe through your lower abdominals going into a lift, sometimes it's hard without an external cue, right? Like when I would teach clients how to do this, I would actually like tap their belly and try to get them to breathe into my fingers. So having a belt around my waist is going to allow me to push into that with my abdominals, push into that with my breath. So I think a belt is actually very valuable. Now, if you're on a cable machine doing tricep extensions with a belt on, horrible. Take that off because there's no reason for it. But deadlift squats, it's a little bit different. Um, straps, same thing with gloves. I think straps are fine as long as you're not using them for everything. I see the people that they just wear their gloves for the whole entire workout. I don't believe in that. I think that if you're working up to a heavy set and you get towards a heavy weight and the gloves are going to keep your form tight, then I think you should wear them. Um, did I answer that well? I mean... I, cover I think so. Uh, same thing. Like I saw him, I saw that post, but same thing. I didn't go in and actually read the, the whole thing. Um, but yeah, he is really good at titles, but the, the only thing like that I have experience with is, is with belt is with wearing a belt. Um, just having like a little bit of low back pain. Like I was advised to wear the belt so that I could learn how to breathe properly. Like you said, so that I made sure that I was filling up my abdominal uh, lower abdominals and that I was fully like, uh, bracing my core and just ready to, um, you know, ready to, to do the squat or deadlift or anything like that. Um, you know, but I didn't wear it all the time. I would put it on, especially when, when the weight got heavier. Um, but that was really helpful for me to be able to learn how to do that. Like yeah. I benefit from learning to do that. So. I think a lot of people argue too, like, okay, well, if you had to pick something super heavy off the ground in real life, you're not going to have a belt on you. But it's like, how often do you walk around and have to pick up a 400 pound fucking box off the floor? Like it doesn't happen. So to me, I'm going to be like, okay, well, if this allows me to build more muscle, build more strength and not worry about anything, I'm going to wear it. So I do think it, I think there's more merit than people make it out to be. I think you should, you should be able to lift without it to a certain extent, because if you can't, pick up a hundred pounds off the floor without it, then you have some back issues that you need to address first. But if you're using it, once you get to that sticking point, then I think it's, I think it's totally fine. Okay. Her second question was also something you've addressed adjacently before, uh, but there seems a more recent trend in power lifters also training for physique. I would love to know how some of them perform so well while also maintaining, maintaining such great physiques given your rationale behind density, I suspect there will be, that will be part of your answer. Ah, yes, it is. Um, have you seen these guys? I mean, they're like natural bodybuilders who just crushed the powerlifting stage too. No. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's actually really inspiring. It makes you, cause like they'll be on a natural bodybuilding stage looking great. And then they literally go to a powerlifting stage and they crush like competition and yeah, power building is really the that's the whole concept behind density and why I created that program. It's the best of both worlds. So I think there's a few things that go into this. Number one, you have to be aware of genetics, right? There's there's some people that do that that are genetic freaks. Like they can lift super fucking heavy and they look amazing too. 
they're genetically gifted, right? So what they did is they can go to a powerlifting meet and then cut their carbs and calories for eight weeks and be shredded for stage, right? So those people shouldn't be even in the conversation because that's just, it's the one percenters. The other sense of it is they're power lifters who actually just watch their diet like a bodybuilder. And what I mean by that is what studies show like with volume and intensity and frequency, as long as you're hitting the weekly volume, you will build the muscle. So you don't need to train like a bodybuilder to build the muscle. You just need to hit enough volume and enough. And that can include the weight you're lifting as well. So reps times sets times weight lifted. So these, a lot of these power lifters will do their powerlifting training where they're in the gym for two hours lifting heavy weights on the compounds. And then they spend 20 minutes doing some accessory work like lateral raises and curls and stuff like that. And they're going to get that same benefit because they technically do have the amount of volume. The issue is, is we see a lot of classic uh, or the, I guess the misconception, we see a lot of classic powerlifters who are fat and they're strong as shit, but they just eat like hell. So they have a big belly. They're not ripped. So we thought, and people assumed in the media that that's what powerlifting got you was just fat. So these other bodybuilders were like, okay, I'm going to lift like a powerlifter. I'm going to eat what I need to perform that way, but I'm going to eat well. I'm going to watch my calories. I'm going to track my macros. And they end up getting pretty lean in the process because you don't need to be fat to be a power lifter. Um, I coach a couple power lifters right now that are super lean. So that's a big piece of it too. And then another part of it is would just be, like I said, it's density, right? Like looking at your training, like making sure you're hitting the compounds and you're hitting the compounds at a lower rep range. So you're building strength and then adding in hypertrophy work after it, or you're phasing it like like uh, density is where we go two phases in a row, two blocks of um, specifically bodybuilding style training, high rep stuff. And then we go into a strength phase where we change things a little bit and we really focus on the compounds. Then we do a test week, two weeks where you're testing your lifts and then you go back to the start. So um, I think it's a combination of everything. Uh, I think it's super, super interesting. And it's cool because it just shows us that like no one modality is right right? Like you don't need to lift like a bodybuilder to be a bodybuilder. You don't need to lift like a powerlifter to be a powerlifter. You can combine things. And, and I kind of actually talk about it in the description of the book. Like you should do multiple things because your body is meant to do more than one thing. You shouldn't be just good at lifting one to three reps. Like you should be good at the four to six, the eight to 10, the 12 to 15 rep range as well versus just always doing endurance style training or only doing hypertrophy or only doing strength. Um, I don't know. I think, I think that answers the question. It's not like there's no like one good answer that I think she just asked for my thoughts. Right. Yeah. She, yeah. She was just kind of wondering like, how are they doing that? But I think you answered it. And also, I mean, I think, like you said, I think nutrition comes in huge there. Like they're probably not just eating whatever, whenever trying to get big, they're probably, I mean, like you said, their micronutrients along with their macronutrients are probably just so dialed in. Yeah. Well, I know AJ Roberts too. And I had him on the podcast and he trained at Westside Barbell for years. And he'll tell you like they ate McDonald's, they ate Big Macs, they ate like shit because all they saw was like calories in energy that you could use. And all they needed was to lift the weight. They didn't give a shit what they look like. Now they just take a more meticulous approach with it. And it's like, okay, maybe we'll be healthier and do this for longer if we're not super overweight. And this is how we do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Nicole McBrizzle, how would you approach a group class when most individuals are young and agile, but there are a few older clients with limited range of motion? It's a group class, anywhere between six and 10 people, and one or two of them are older, and these folks are not able to perform majority of the basic movements, squat, hinge, 
um, pattern movements, difficulty with any floor work, et cetera. What would you say would be the best practice to approach the class from a coaching perspective while still ensuring safety and ensuring that everyone is getting a quality workout in? So first of all, I think her name is Nicole McBride. I think this is one of my clients. Oh, but sorry. I, but I think what she, I but I mean, I think, but she's no, her Facebook name is different. It's something like, like she, cause isn't it like McBrizzle or something like that? Mick McBrizzle. It says it says Nicole McBrizzle. Yeah. So she's just she's just messing around with stuff because because I even read it and I was like, what does that say? Because her first name spelled different on there too. Her her normal name is spelled N I C O L E like normal. Oh yeah. So on here it's me like K N E E C O A L like Nicole. <laughs> I wonder what that means. It's got to have a significance to it. Anyway, um, so I think it depends a lot um, in a couple things, and you you'll probably be able to touch on this too, being that you were in CrossFit for so long, but. I think there's 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 obviously a point of diminishing returns. If I have a group class and I have 20-year-old athletes and then I have a 70-year-old who is in a lot of pain, it doesn't make sense to put them – you're taking all individuality out of it, and that's the issue with a lot of group classes. Um, but at the same token, I used to run boot camp classes where there was literally – this lady was in the gym. She was 67. I think she's, she's over that now because I was training her years ago. And she was crushing it just like all the people in the boot camp. So sometimes it's fine. Um, but – and, and I think you have to recognize certain scenarios when somebody shouldn't be in the class, you need to be a coach and you just need to recognize that and be real with them and say that I do not think this is like right for you, like your movement, your age, your disability, whatever it may be. Um, but most of the time they should be fine. Like I, what we would do when I would run classes is go, okay, station one is a deadlift. We can do a dumbbell deadlift, a kettlebell deadlift, a stagger deadlift, a body weight, like slow negative deadlift, body weight, single leg reach it's a hip hinge, right? All that matters is that we're giving them some kind of resistance or none and just controlling the movement pattern as long as they're doing it. So if that was station one, station two could be a push-up, but that could be a barbell elevated push-up. It could be a, a push-up with a renegade row. It could be a knee push-up. There's so many different variations. Um, station three might be a goblet squat, but a goblet squat could be an air squat, a jump squat, one and a half rep squat, goblet squat, double kettlebell front squat. We could change it to a split squat. So if you start looking at things as movement patterns and look at things like push, pull, hip, knee, core, vertical versus horizontal, um, rotation, stuff like that, I think you can just regress things for people, right? If you have one person doing a barbell sumo deadlift and the other one doing a kettlebell deadlift because they're just not the same level, who really cares? Or even like a glute bridge, which is super safe on your low back, but it's still a hip hinge. Muscles are kind of stupid where they're going to activate and that's all that really matters. So as long as you're creating tension in the right mus muscles, I don't think it's an issue. And I think you just got to learn how to adjust according to the person. Would you yeah, agree? I, um, I know with, with the group class classes, like it was always, um, you know, who was betting the class what coach you know we had some really good coaches that would you know it was kind of like this is level one this is level two this is level three you know and exactly like you would you know and if you know that those people are going to be in your class just already having something ready to like show them um because I ran um hit class for a summer and just same thing I mean nobody was on the same level or anything like that but you just you know you just work with them so like you said that so that they're doing the same movement you know that it's you know, that everyone's doing a variety of a squat, but someone's just working at their level at that time. And it was fun to watch them move up to the next level, you know, yeah. day after day, you know, week after week of, you know, that summer. So I think that's a good point too. If you can make like a, uh, 
a leveling system or a ranking system, it actually motivates people to get better and be like, man, you would easily be able to do level two squat if you just worked on your hip mobility. And now people are like coming in early and doing some extra work. Um, and we kind of did that same thing. It wasn't CrossFit, so it was different. We didn't have names for it like CrossFit does, which I think is something really smart that good CrossFits do. Um, but but we did the same thing. It was level one, level two, level three. We just kind of like, if, if this is too hard, do this. If that's too hard, you can do this instead. Like you just kind of break it down for them. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay. Beth, uh, Beth Mounier, Mounier, two questions. <laughs> I like how you're laughing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oftentimes when trainers discuss how to set up their days, it revolves around training in the evening after work. For a 5 a.m. workout, is it possible to have high fat, low carbs through the day then still have the bigger carb meal in the afternoon, evening? How would you set up? Um, intermittent fasting for a 5 a.m. So I wouldn't. <laughs> it's like my thing is this. I just don't. I'm not a huge fan of intermittent fasting if you're training in the morning. I just do not think it's – I don't like going into training no matter what your goal is, completely fasted and planning on not eating afterwards. If somebody goes into the training session fasted, I'm cool with that as long as they're eating right afterwards. I just think that – for recovery purposes, um, adrenal and cortisol purposes, like it's just it just makes so much more sense to fuel your your workout. But in those scenarios, you can do the loading at night. So what I would do is like protein and fats all day, keeping it pretty low carb. Your carbs are basically coming from veggies, maybe a serving of fruit, like high fiber fruit. And then at night you can have all your carbs, but your carbs need to be very low glycemic and very high fiber because you want them to digest very slow. You don't want a crazy insulin spike and blood sugar drop and stuff in the middle of the night. Um, and you will wake up with fuel because we know that carbs are stored as glycogen and glycogen is going to be there for you 24 to 36 hours after you eat it. So the, the oatmeal you eat at four in the morning before your 530 AM workout isn't really doing much for you. Um, besides get, maybe giving you some like quick neurological fuel, um, depending on your like dopamine and serotonin levels, which is like a completely different rabbit hole. But if you have like yams or oats or brown rice or whatever your carb of choices at night, I do think that you'll be fine in the morning with a workout. I would just make sure you're having something right after the workout. So what I usually program it out for people is they'll eat their last meal at say, 8 p.m. and they have um, plenty of starches in it. So if they're going to fast 14 to 16 hours, that's going to be 10 to 12, uh, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. the next day. They'll wake up at 5:30, go into the training session fasted. After their workout, maybe they'll have like a whey shake with a uh, like glycofuse, like a cyclic dextrin carb that gets rapidly digested for your muscle glycogen to replenish that, to make sure that your cortisol isn't staying chronically elevated. And then you just continue on with your fast until that 12 p.m., 16-hour mark. Now, you're obviously not technically fasting because you had the shake, but you're still lower calorie. You're still getting the insulin benefits. Um, You're still going to be eating low carb throughout the day because you're waiting until that last meal. So that's how I would set it up. I just, I, I don't know about you, but I just, I never have anybody that is like, very rarely do people perform extremely well in the morning. And sometimes people have more mental clarity, but when you put PRs next to PRs, like let's actually track what weight you're lifting. I am yet to find somebody who actually lifts more weight in a fasted state than somebody who lifts more in a fed state. Um, and it doesn't mean it's impossible because some people do feel more clear and better fast in the morning. Um, I just, I prefer people to have fuel at least right afterwards. Um, and if they can just train in the afternoon, we know that like after a full day, 
your body is been moving all day, you're more hydrated, your joints are more lubricated, you've, your spine is less compressed from being in bed. Um, you've had probably one, two, or at least two, but maybe even three meals before you work out. Um, studies actually have been shown that between 3 and 4 p.m. is the most ideal time, and they don't know why, but people perform best between 3 to 4 p.m. So I'm a huge fan of trying to change that schedule personally. Yeah, I agree. At least even just changing the fasting schedule, like just always picking a day where that's going to be on a, on a rest day. Like, I don't feel like, I mean, somebody shouldn't be working out seven days a week anyway. So it's like, you could implement an intermittent, you know, a fasting day on your rest day. No problem for sure. Um, yeah. And then do you, for, um, for the early morning workouts, um, I've been recommending clients also sip on like BCAAs or EAAs um, in addition to after they train, getting a carb and protein shake in as well or going home and having a full meal. Yeah, I think that I actually, if you're really focused on the, the fasting part of it, it would probably be better to have a BCA or EAA with, uh, so if people don't know, branched amino acids versus essential amino acids. I think essential amino acids are better. They just have more studies. Um, the hard part is finding good brands. For some reason, branch chains are so much more popular. Um, True Nutrition is a good brand. It's unflavored, but it tastes so fucking bad. It's like literally, it's unbelievable how bad it tastes. I was like, it was, it's horrible. But I think I, I've read reviews because I looked it up after that. I was like, this is absurd. But I guess all essential amino acids taste pretty bad. So, But with that, you're not going to spike your blood sugar as much, I guess. But if you're having the carbs anyway, it's going to happen. So I do like that. I sip on uh, essentials while I work out, um, even though I don't work out fasted. And I guess I was looking at it from a daily fast perspective, her question. Um, I would rather have a client not fast at all and then do what you said and just fast one day of the week on a rest day, um, which I think you just plugged in for one of your clients. But basically, they just have one day a week where they fast, whether it's 16, 18, 20, even 24 hours but those longer fasts are going to be much more beneficial. Um, at, from a daily perspective, the only thing I really recommend on a regular basis is 12 hours of like either complete fasting or carb fasting. So even if you're like for me, because I eat quite a bit of meals, I don't get a full 12 hours between my meals, but I do get 12 hours between carb feedings and that's going to help uh, insulin levels. It will help digestion as well because obviously carbs take a toll on digestion. So um, I'm with you on the daily as well. I, for one, have noticed a big improvement when I do several days of time-restricted eating where I go 12, 13 hours um, uh, without eating. Um, but I don't know. That was um, that was really beneficial to me. And then I've also um, had a lot of my clients start doing that too, especially for the ones who have gut health issues or you know digest digestion issues. Have um, you heard... Uh uh ronda dr ronda patrick's thing on that uh yeah you were telling me about that okay yeah because they did one on time restricted eating and it's all about that 12 hour window um dr panda suchin i think his name is really yeah. really great podcast if anybody listening hasn't listened to that but they break down the science behind it and he even says like no water no coffee no nothing which i think is taking it to a whole nother level um but basically yeah. it's all centered around I, your I circadian rhythm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would too, but we know for a fact that even if you're just having water and coffee and stuff like that, if you're having no calories for 12 hours a day, your digestion will absolutely improve. I think what they oh, yeah. were focused on is the circadian rhythm, the melatonin levels, the um, blue light exposure and things like that improving because of it. But 
um, yeah, they went deep into that. They did. I listened to that. It was really good, but yeah, some of it, uh, some of it got pretty sciencey, pretty yeah. deep. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Her next part, what scares you and what are things that make you afraid, anxious about the future? Additionally, why do you think people fear things they don't have yet? Hear things they don't have yet? Fear. Oh, fear. fear. Things <laughs> I was like, I don't get that. Okay. So I have one funny one for what scares me and I'll let you go too. Um, but I'll say a serious one after this, but the other day, so me and Travis, uh, my media guy, we were up in Seattle filming content for the membership site that I'm, I'm launching soon. So we're shooting a bunch of videos. So everybody will have like coaching videos and me breaking down exercise and stuff. And we went to whole foods for uh, lunch afterwards and we were walking by this family and this guy, it was like this guy, his wife and like his kids. And one of his daughters was behind him and she was wearing like short shorts and she was probably like 15 or 16. And I like looked over and I looked at Travis and I was like, dude, I'm going to like bring a tape measure to the shopping mall with my daughter. If she tries to like, she's going to have a bare minimum of how short her shorts could be. So what fears, what I fear because Blakely is, she's so cute. It's crazy. Her, she has long hair, blue eyes. I was like, she's going to be <laughs> trouble. So that scares me for sure. Cause I'm going to be that dad. But what scares me on a serious level, um, I should have read that one before. This is hard. <laughs> Do you have anything that comes to mind for you right out the gate? Um, things that scare you and that make you afraid, anxious about the future. Um, I don't know. Like when I, I mean, just to, this is just how I think though. But I mean, when I think about our food system, I mean, what scares me and what makes me anxious for the future is that, you know, the, that America, the people, the government and everything doesn't, act quick enough and make changes fast enough for our children and my grandchildren like that that scares me just the the route that we're on right now and the and the path with all the diseases and obesity and just everything you know all the chemicals that are just in in everything that is surrounding us um yeah that uh that makes me afraid and anxious for just for my kids and, and for my grandkids, like I said. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a scary topic. And it's, it's, my mind went somewhere completely different, but I agree with you. I think that yeah. it's crazy that it's not, I mean, it, money's behind it all. So it's not that crazy, honestly. I was gonna say it's crazy that people aren't more, their eyes aren't open more to this and they're not trying to change it. But if you look at the government and what they're trying to make money off of and taxes and all that stuff, and it's just, it's ridiculous. But I think what scares me is um, it scares me, but it excites me. So it goes back to that excitement and anxiety thing because it's why I do what I do. But it, I mean, I would be lying if I said I, I never wake up with some like scarcity or fear or doubt or like worries about honestly the growth of Boom Boom Performance, like being able to sustain the podcast, the videos, um, bringing in clients for you, bringing in clients for me, bringing in clients for the next coaches that work for me, because my plan is to have a whole team of coaches, right? To be able to fulfill what I'm talking about for the membership site and to have enough people in there and to make sure that they're getting the best training programs they could possibly get. And like all these things that I kind of put on my plate, like that scares me, but in a good way, you know what I mean? Cause it's like, 
it, it fires me up so much, but it definitely, that's why I have my morning routine. That's why I wake up and I meditate and I chill and I don't look at any notifications or any, anything yet because that's what kind of creates clarity. And just as long as I remember why I'm doing it all, I think that's like the big thing for me. But um, I think really just that. And then my daughter, my daughter scares me, like <laughs> just in every aspect. Well, I like think, yeah. I think, I think my, like if talking about kids, like my funny one is that my kids don't grow up to be assholes. Like yeah. <laughs> I just right. want them to, you know, I don't know, just, I don't know. It's, provide you know people within the society <laughs> it's so it's so crazy like now that because it's so funny because i used to i mean i have i've been training clients for years now and i've had so many clients that have kids obviously and i've talked to people about kids and i always just kind of like oh yeah yeah i get it like i know i know but now everything is so surreal for me and like <laughs> this morning i was like changing her diaper and then i just looked at shannon and i was like i hope in her mind she can look at me and like love me just as much as I love her when I look at her because it's so overwhelming. Like, we'll just fucking stare at her. We'll just sit there and stare at her and just be like, this is ridiculous. So I, I think, think... I don't think you do because, I mean, you just... Not until, like, not until you have a kid, then do you realize, like... Yeah. That love, like, I yeah. don't know. I mean, I love my parents. I love my mom and dad, but I didn't understand their love for me until I had my own children. Yeah. I actually went through that as well. Like thinking like, holy shit, I didn't know that my parents cared about me this much. Like it's crazy. And I think just for me, just like worrying about like making sure she's comfortable, she's safe. She has everything she needs. Like you said, she grows up and she's like a good person, like a really good person. And I become the right role model and stuff like that stuff scares me more than anything. But, um, but yeah. And then the other part of her question was like fear, Uh um, why do you think people fear things they don't have yet? Um, I think that just comes from, cause if you really want something and you don't have it, I mean, what if you, what if you work really hard at it and you still don't get it? I think that, I think it just kind of comes from the stems from the fear of failure, fear of, um, not getting something that you really, really want. Um, but then I don't know, also just not like, you know, maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you don't get something that you really want, but then being able to still find, um, you know, find a, find value in that and find, you know, a lesson within that, even if you don't achieve something that you don't have or, or that you wanted. Um, I mean, I, I mean, just to take it to this, like I, you know, even when we were going through our mentorship, like I really, really wanted to be a coach under Boom Boom Performance. And the fear of, you know, the whole time we're going through a mentorship, like the fear that that might not happen, but then just knowing like, you know, okay, if it doesn't happen, there's got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason why and, and finding that and finding the, the lesson in that and stuff like that. But I think that's spot on. You have to be able to find the lesson. I think that it's change, like, right? Like they fear what they don't have because they don't have it literally. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but if you don't have something, you're not used to it. It's not comfortable. It's not something you feel secure about. It's not something that you're used to doing or comfortable being good at. So I think anytime there's change, you're always going to have a a level of discomfort. And I think people don't fear the thing. They feel the discomfort about the thing. Um, And people are just too afraid to be uncomfortable. And then I think it comes down to judgment, to be honest with you. I think that when I used to like get worked up or fear failure or fear not doing something good enough it was always centered around judgment and i never knew 
that. And I never knew why. And once I learned about judgment, I learned about myself and I learned that like, the reason I'm fearing failure is because what will so-and-so think if I fail, or I would sabotage my results and not win or not succeed because I was fearing what if so-and-so thinks this of me because I succeeded now I'm on this high horse or now I'm too good or whatever. And like these thoughts go in your head when in reality, they're just that they're thoughts inside of your head. So if you can eliminate the fear of judgment and the, the worry about judgment, I think that you'll stop fearing it completely. Cause I know for me, once I eliminated the whole judgment concept, I literally was just taking action on and doing everything that came up into my life without question. Cause I just stopped caring what people would think. Um, and, lo and behold, nobody cared, <laughs> like anyway, whether I failed and succeeded. So um, if you can eliminate that judgment piece, I think, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's huge. Um, Melina, Olivia, oh wait, was that? Yeah, she had a second question. Um, for post-workout, whey is always touted as being the best thing to quickly get into your system. For those who can't eat dairy, what's the second best? Hmm. Um, this question, oh my gosh, this got me for like a year and a half because I can't eat dairy. And so it was- Oh, you can't constant. eat whey. No, I can't have whey. And that's all you hear is you need to, you know, whey protein's the best. Like, da, 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 like um, so just researching everything, like, okay, well, what's second best? And- everything kind of, I mean, when it was all said and done, it, I came back to the answer that way is best. And after that, it kind of doesn't really matter. Yeah. (laughs) You can have a vegan protein shake. You can go eat real food. You can go, you know, but it was, it just kept coming back to way is the best thing that you can have after a workout. And so I just, I, you know, I have my vegan proteins that I really like, or I'll just come home and have a really solid, um, healthy, balanced meal after, you know, I get home. But I don't know. Yeah. What's your answer? (laughs) I think that, I mean, first and foremost, I always go real food. My whole thing is this, like, if you can have real food instead, just do that. Mm -hmm. The only time I, I put in a way shake or a carb shake or the combination of two even if somebody can eat right afterwards is if they're doing like high like they're really doing crossfit like they're actually doing crossfit at that point i know it's such a high intensity that you're in such a sympathetic state that i want to bring you down right away um that i'll have that shake and then i'll go into meal but if somebody has problem with way i'm like yo just literally go home and eat within the next couple hours and you'll be totally fine like it's really not the end of the yeah. world if you wait an hour and a half versus 30 minutes um if you can get to a meal in 30 minutes great like for me to be honest with you i eat a whole food meal but i literally walk inside and start cooking because i get done with my workout at five and I work out in my house. So it's like, it's different for me. Not everybody has that situation. But what I will say is they do make like egg white protein, which um, is like from legit sources like now foods and stuff. So you can go with like egg white powder, which isn't going to be as good, but it's going to, I mean, taste wise, it's not going to be as good. But the thing about proteins, you have to look at what's called bioavailable protein. So this is why whey is so popular. Whey is dairy and dairy is very bioavailable, meaning it's, it's, broken down and ready for you to absorb. It's high in leucine. It's high in the amino acids that you need. It's easy to, for your muscles to actually, like I said, absorb, get the aminos in the bloodstream. Um, chicken, fish, steak, eggs, all these things are very high in leucine. They're very bioavailable. 
plants are not bioavailable. Plants are lower in leucine and they're not as high in any of the amino acids that you need to actually build muscle. And they don't get absorbed as fast as these other bioavailable ones. Therefore, they're not quote unquote bioavailable proteins. The good thing about plant-based protein powders is they take plants, they microdose them, they multiply them and they make them bioavailable, right? So I would say a vegan protein powder is totally fine for post-workout because they take a plant and make it a much better option for you. It might not, like you said, it's kind of like whey and then everything else. Um, but if you need to just go with the plant-based one. And I even think there's, there's merit to like diversifying your proteins, right? Like I used to always alternate between a whey and a plant-based just so it wasn't like every day I was having whey. It was like, I'm switching my protein sources every day. I try to have like for breakfast, I'm eating five meals a day right now. Every meal has a different protein source in it. So I'm getting different varieties of proteins throughout the day. Um, Cause I think there's merit to that. And then I think there's merit to having a day where you have very low protein too, like I've talked about on the show recently. So that could be your vegan day, right? Where you don't have meat and you're naturally lower protein, but your proteins come from plants. So um, do a vegan shake or just eat real food. That's probably the best way to go. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, I'm, a, I'm probably about 50, 50 during the week, like just depending on what we're doing with the kids and stuff like that. Um, I would say, yeah, half the time I just come in and just have real food. And I found that that's just, that's been just as beneficial um, as anything. Well, that's the problem with, I think the media and like supplement marketing made people think that a protein powder was a meal um, replacement. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a meal replacement. It's a supplement. Meaning like you said, shit, my workout's over. I got to take the kids to school or do this. I'm busy. So I have this shake to substitute for half of the meal or however many calories it is until I can get to a real meal. Um, So people got to kind of switch their mind frame. Um, Okay. Lauren Callahan, what's the optimal window for eating when working out? Oh, we kind of already answered this. I'm at the end of the workout. Is this hindering my progress? Uh, I do eat 30 minutes after getting home. She said she's, she, it, what's hindering her progress? She said, is, so um, she works out at 4.30 a.m. And I've never been able to eat prior to going to work out. Is this hindering my progress? So kind of like the other question, the 5 a.m. workout question where you were saying yeah. um, to eat at night. Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. I would just, I would train fast if I was her. Because I think that's way different too. Like if you're eating, I mean, shit, if she's, she's working out at 4.30, yeah, I'm at the gym usually at 4.30 a.m. Holy shit. And then she comes home and eats. After the gym, she comes home and eats within 30 minutes. So that's early. Yeah, that's early. And unless like, but that means to me, I'm going, I guess, okay, what time do you go to bed? So she's probably not getting enough sleep, in my opinion. She's probably going to bed too late. So my first thing would be like, stop worrying about your nutrient timing and start worrying about your sleep. Get enough sleep, maybe work out in the afternoon so you can sleep in a little bit. If you absolutely can't, try to get as much sleep as you can. Have carbs in your final meal. You'll wake up. You'll be totally fine. Mm-hmm. So, And this question is from me. So advice for those whose significant others aren't on the same health page or desire to become healthy. They continue to keep tempting poor food choices in the house. Um you know, just not, not being helpful and supportive to the person who is trying to make changes. Do you feel like you run into this with clients a lot? 
Uh, yeah, like with husbands and wives who like one person's ready to make a change and see a difference and become healthier and then the other person's not. Or sometimes you have one person who is just more naturally lean and they, so they don't feel like they need to eat healthy or they don't feel like they need to clean up their diet as much or work out as much or something like that. And then the other person is having problems with, um, you know, weight fluctuation or staying healthy. Um, and so then the other person maybe isn't as, as supportive of the changes because they don't, they're like, why should I change? I'm, I'm not overweight. You know? Right. I think two things happened. They actually did a study on this, I think too. And it was basically like, if one person loses a ton of weight and the other person doesn't, the fear of separation is like tenfold. Um, so I think a lot of it comes back to a judgment thing. Like certain people will be stubborn and resistant or just not consistent with it because they fear that, or they try to sabotage because if I'm with you and you lose a bunch of weight, then you're not going to want to be with me anymore. So I'm going to try to sabotage that or not support it. So you stop doing it because I don't want you to lose weight because we're comfortable, um, which is, I don't have an answer for that because I'm not a therapist, right? I think that's very hard. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think to be honest with you, I think, and this is just for healthy relationships in general, it comes down to having a crucial conversation. If you want to change yourself because you are unhappy with the way you look and feel and you are trying to make changes, your significant other should 100% support you no matter what. Like there should be no question about it. And if they're not, you have to have a conversation just like that. Like I would be the first person to be like, why don't you support me? Like that, I'm in shock right now, right? Like you're supposed to be this person that supports every move yet I'm trying to become healthier and you're not letting me. So I think a lot of people, and I've run into this with a, a ton of clients, and I always tell them, like, you have to have a real conversation with that person because I can guarantee if you're married to somebody and they do want the best for you, they will hear you out and they will respond differently than you assume um, about what you want to achieve. And I think it just comes down to that crucial conversation, which is hard to have. Yeah, it is. I just did a post on my Instagram today too about, um, you know, that you have two circles, like the inner circles, the things that you can control, and then the outer circle, the things that you can't control. Um, and then just trying to stay within that inner circle, you know, that you can control your thoughts, the way that you act, the way that you are, you know, the things that you eat, um, and the things that you're going to do for yourself to be healthy. And then just knowing that you can't control I mean, really anyone else, you can't control your husband or wife, you can't control your kids. Um, but then it just comes down to hopefully, you know, just leading by example and just doing the things that are going to help you achieve your goals. You know, hopefully they will come around to supporting you and or joining you in, you know, the venture for health. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, I agree. It comes down to, yeah, why, why are you not supporting me? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, okay. Mackenzie Haupt. Haupt. Don't know. Sorry. Thoughts on sprouted greens. Nutrition wise, are they a better option than regular whole wheat products? Or does it just depend on what the individual digests the best? I, I want to say, um, I actually don't really eat any bread at all to be honest with you anymore but i went through a phase where i was eating sprouted grains all the all the time um and as far as i know i believe that sprouted grains just have more nutrients like i think the way they're grown is a little bit different um so they're in they're just a more nutrient rich food um which 
I think that like, so basically their whole thing is like it packs more protein, packs more vitamins, minerals, stuff like that when it's sprouted. So it could be possibly better for you. I think it's just kind of one of those things that like how much different is it really? You know, I think you're splitting hairs. And I think if you have an issue with grains, it's probably going to bug you regardless. Um, I think you're much better off focusing on just eating a more abundance of foods like produce and stuff to get your vitamins and minerals versus choosing sprouted grains versus whole grains. I think it's splitting hairs. Um, but I'm pretty sure, I don't know if you have anything else on sprouted grains, but I'm pretty sure it's just more nutrient dense. Uh, yeah. And then it's just easier to digest. I mean, she, it's, it kind of sounds like she's specifically asking about bread. Um, but then when it comes to like sprouted grains, as far as like, um, rice and quinoa and things like that, even like nuts and seeds, um, the way that they used to, like a long time ago, the way that they used to, um, uh, like deal with nuts and seeds and, and grains and stuff like that is they would soak them overnight and then the next day they would drain the, the water um, and that helps helped it um, be more to be more easily digestible um, and not so hard on the stomach and everything like that but now that everything is so mass produced they don't companies usually don't take the time to do that anymore they're they're not soaking the nuts and seeds overnight, you know, in the water and they're not, you know, the grains aren't sprouted anymore. So I think some people are just noticing that um, it's a little bit tougher on their stomach and, and digestion process. So if you, you are having problems with that, then you could purchase, you know, sprouted grains, sprouted nuts and seeds, or you could do it yourself at home and you might notice an easier time digesting those things. Um, but I don't, you know, like you said, as far as like, I mean, how much bread are you having in a day? Like if you're only having one piece or two, maybe, you know, a couple times a week or something, it's probably not going to make that big of a difference. Um, but if you're really having digestion issues and things like that and nutrient issues, then it might be worth um, checking into making sure that all the grains that you're eating are sprouted and just so that they're easier to digest and for you to, to eat. Yeah. And I think like with people, anybody who has gut issues, you should be pretty comfortable with experimenting with things because you got to test things out. And that goes for everything across the board. This whole purpose of an elimination diet, right? Like eat this, see what happens, eat that, see what happens, test things out, see what works for you and then stick with that and eliminate the rest. Like I'm a big fan of like very like consistency and a little bit of rigidness to be honest with you i think that some like the flexible dieting movement just got too much variety in people's diets and so if you're having gut issues and i said like what is it that you're eating you have no idea because you're changing your diet so frequently eating so many different things eating out at restaurants so um but the same thing applies with this test it out and if it doesn't work then scratch it i agree um alex stout I've never heard you talk about your tattoos. What's your favorite one? Any significant meaning behind them or just a big fan of the art? Yeah, I, I have zero tattoos. <laughs> all you, buddy. Um, <laughs> you know, I've always just been a fan of tattoos. I've always been like, I'm just going to, like, for lack of better terms, tat it up. Like, I just always in my mind was like, I'm going to be tatted up. Like, so I... Uh, some of them are just for art. Like when you have a, like I have a full arm sleeve. So when you have a sleeve, there's certain places that just need to be filled and you're not going to always have a specific thing that you want in there. You just kind of add something to make it work. Right. Like I have a diamond on my bicep. It has nothing to do with me liking diamonds. It just fit 
the artwork and it fit in this spot and the shape that I needed to fill up. So we filled it up because I didn't want any skin showing on my arm. Like it's completely covered. Um, but I'd say my favorite tattoo is probably, I have a couple, I have my initials written on me, but my grandma wrote the uh, calligraphy. So I like that a lot, obviously, because my grandma wrote it. I have a quote from my mom. I love that one, obviously. Um, I have Kaizen in Japanese symbols on the back of my arms and Kaizen means continuous improvement. So I love that. Um, I really, I don't really have any other favorites though. It's like, I love all of them. They all kind of symbolize like family, um, where I'm from and like some kind of ambitious. So I have ambition on me. I have Kaizen on me, things like that. Um, I've stayed true on my ankles and that basically is symbolizing like be authentic. Right. Um, but I think my favorite one is coming up. I have an appointment in exactly 20 days to get an entire leg sleeve. So like knee down, everything done, which is going to be, so I'm there for two days in a row to get as much as possible. And then I possibly have to go back in August because it's just a lot of room to fill, but I'm excited for that one. Cause this guy like is pretty well known and I've been waiting over a year to sit in his chair. So it's going to be expensive, but <laughs> probably really cool. So I'm excited for that. That's cool. Um, do people normally wait that long for tattoos? No, I've never waited that long, but this guy is like the shit. Like he's really, really good. And it's crazy. Cause I think he started doing Instagram or something. Cause he doesn't have as many followers as he should, but he moved up here and started a shop um, last year. And I found his shop within three months. Like I was like, damn, when did this get here? And he's like, Oh, I just opened up three months ago. I moved here from LA. And I was like, sat down for a consultation at the end of it. He was like, are you good waiting a year? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm booked out until next, um, next July. And I was like, you just opened three months ago. What the fuck? Like, but I was like, yeah, man, if you're that good, like, let's do it. So I've been waiting. That's good. We'll get, I'm excited for you. Uh, Bobby Enright, when looking at fats within a diet, when would you choose to go a little higher fat, lower carbs for a client when trying to drop body fat? Um, for me, um, it's usually all related to whether or not I think they're insulin sensitive or not like so i've been playing with this a little bit um and i just had jason theobald on the podcast so if i can get them to do a blood glucose meter with a glucometer then i'll do that right out the gate because if i look at somebody and i'm like they could be possibly insulin resistant well we'll just test their fasted blood glucose if it's 95 to 100 or more i'm probably going to put them on a lower carb higher fat approach so we can resent that reset that insulin sensitivity, that's going to allow them to process carbs a little bit better. So whether or not they want to be on a high carb diet later on or not, they can at least be on a more balanced approach without worrying about it. Because if we cut calories and they're not losing any weight, we know that this could be a possible thing, right? They're below maintenance. They should be losing weight. They're not. One, it could be metabolic damage from like a long-term deficit that needs a reverse diet but the other thing could be insulin issues or maybe they have uh, pcos and they that causes insulin resistance so that would be another um, time that i do a high fat approach so basically if i look at somebody um, whether i can test their blood glucose or not there's symbols and in, in signs and symptoms that you can look at that show you like this person probably has poor insulin levels um, that or i would test their blood glucose and that would definitely make me go lower carb higher fat the other case would be somebody who has pcos um, because that causes insulin resistance. Obviously, that's females only. Um, and then the other scenario, the only other scenario would really be like a sedentary individual. Like if somebody's like, I don't want to train, I'm not going to train, I'm just looking to lose weight or have a better health. We know that digesting and processing carbs actually speeds up the aging process. Um, and carbs don't really have any necessity except for fuel for performance. So unless you're straightly 
strictly using them for performance, there's not really a need for them. So if I have somebody that's sedentary or just does not care about performing or building muscle or doing anything in the gym, then I'm probably going to go with that, that approach as well. Okay. I love it. I agree 100% with that. I was the whole time you were talking, I was like, okay, I'm going to, what am I going to add? Cause you just kept saying <laughs> the next thing that I was like thinking of. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good. Jessica Evans. Okay. So one last question and, uh, and you asked for something new. How do you reconcile the fact that being a coach often relies on promoting a certain body type while also acknowledging that those images often are the result of unhealthy training and diet habits? I do not think this is what you're doing. You're very clear and articulate about your interest in overall health. Nevertheless, the industry is one that tends to rely on the image of a bodybuilder as an exemplar, which is uh, which I would assume many aspire to, even though it's not sustainable and healthy in the long run. Can you repeat that? <laughs> Your audio completely cut out at like halfway through. Oh, it did? Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. I got, um, she, know, she knows that I'm not, she knows that I'm not doing it, um, well, but. Hold on. How do you reconcile the fact that being a coach often relies on promoting a certain body type while, uh, while also acknowledging that those images are often the result of unhealthy training and dieting habits? I do not think that you're doing this. You're very clear and articulate about your interest in overall health. Nevertheless, the industry is one that tends to rely on the image of a bodybuilder body as an exemplar which I would assume many aspire to, even though this is not sustainable and healthy in the long run. Do you have anything to say on that before I go off? Um, I just think, I mean, in a lot of my coaching, I mean, the way that I present it is just, I mean, while I'm trying to coach people on, you know, nutrition and health and healthy movement and things like that, just also with mindset um, and just, loving themselves for, for who they are and finding, helping them find things that have nothing to do with the outside of the way that the outside of their body looks like. Um, I mean, I know everyone has these goals and that, you know, that's all we see in the media are perfectly chiseled people and bodies and stuff like that. So it's hard to not want that. Um, because that's what we think is, the most attractive to look at or the most attractive to be. Um, but I think just helping, helping people with their body image and just helping people see that, um, you know, it's okay to have a big booty. Sometimes it's okay to have, you know, it's okay to have all different types of bodies out there. And that's what makes life more interesting and people more interesting. Um, you know, I think that's just going to come down to working, you know, working with somebody with their mindset and working with, with them, just being happy with them. And then also like, sometimes I'll ask a lot of people like, okay, so let's pretend like, let's just pretend magically that you get the exact body that you want. Like, is everything in your life going to be better, happier? Are you going to be a better person? Are you going to have a happier life? You know, what's going to change when you obtain this this body image that you have in your head, you know? Um, I think they, you know, sometimes they kind of come to the realization that, you know, they're already 
a great mother or father. They're already a great friend. They're already a great spouse or whatever. Um, and I think that helps them just come to kind of a, a happier place within themselves. You know, I don't know yeah. if that all made sense or not. <laughs> It does. And I, w- I would add to that saying that those people who do understand those things, that they're a good mom, they're a good dad, they're a good person, like blah, 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 they will actually obtain a better body faster and easier than the people who st- overstress and overthink it and overglorify it. Um, all the people who have gotten shredded with me, they're all people who are comfortable in their skin before being shredded. And I think that's a big, big thing. You need to love and appreciate yourself before you can try to obtain abs and stuff. Because I do think there's nothing wrong with saying like, Cause I was the first, I'll be the first one to admit, like when I was overweight, I absolutely would have told you like, hell yes, my life will be way better if I lose this weight. I will be more confident, more energy. And I think that's good, but I didn't hate myself, right? Like I still love myself for many reasons. And that's why it allowed me to be successful with it because there wasn't points in the journey where I would look in the mirror and be like, God, I'm still fat. Like it was like, man, I'm getting better today. This is awesome. Right. And I think that's the big key. Um, and I think like from a business perspective, like if you are authentic, it'll take longer, but eventually you stand out like a sore thumb. Like now that my brand is growing, I stand out a little bit more, but I'm not saying anything radical at all. Like I'm telling the truth. I'm being very honest about it. Like, Hey, this is going to take a long time. You're going to need to be patient. Like none of this is like sexy marketing, right? Like, but Mm -hmm. it's real, it's authentic and people gravitate towards that. So you have to put in the work. I mean, I've been putting out authentic content for seven years now. It's like, now it's catching up and really starting to build. So I think that being authentic, being a real band brand, being true and not flaunting things like that, right? Like I don't post pictures of me looking shredded because that's not what my brand is about, right? And it's also because I don't live shredded year round. Like that's unrealistic, right? Like you'll see maybe like arm veins and stuff like that. That can be natural and year long, but nobody is comfortably shredded all the way around. And if you follow like natural bodybuilders who are like real and true and authentic, like some, I have some friends in that industry, they're not shredded year round and they post pictures and let you know that too. So they're not faking it. Um, and there's times and places for that. Right. So I think being real about it and I'll again, be real about, I'm getting ready to do a photo shoot in September. So I'm dieting for that. I am probably going to get shredded. Like my goal is to literally get like peeled and I'm going to be honest about the process when it sucks. I'm going to be like, yo, I'm doing hella cardio. I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not eating enough food. Like this is part of what it takes to get to my goal though. And that's real. Instead of me posting pictures of pop tarts and acting like I'm not doing anything like on the treadmill and all this bullshit, right? Like, cause that's not reality. So I think it just comes down to being authentic and, and not buying into the shitty places the media is going. Well, yeah, I think, I think that would be good too, for people to see like what it takes, like how hard it is going to take for you to get there. Like, um, you know, I think sometimes people will see images and they'll, you know, think like, oh, they're naturally, naturally that way. Yeah. You know, when really, I think it'll be really good for you to put out there like, nope, it doesn't happen naturally. It comes from a lot of dedication, a lot of hard work, a lot of training. So. Yeah. And that was my goal with it too. Like I haven't done that. I stay comfortably lean. Like I'm not shredded, but I'm lean and I'm healthy and I'm fine with that. And I can be flexible with my diet. But if I want to get like what people see on Instagram shredded. Like if I want to get like that, it takes a lot of work because I'm a normal human being. I'm not a genetic freak. So it'll be interesting to kind of document the process. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called the All-Inclusive Guide to 
<laughs> to mastering your diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients, literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book, not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes charts. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys, and I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time.